My name is Kevin Bates, and I'm a pastor in Sherwood, Oregon. And each and every week, we desire to take theological concepts and principles, biblical stories and narratives, and all the genres of scripture, and help you immerse yourself in order to embody and apply them to your everyday life. I want to encourage you to tune into this online broadcast each and every week and ways you can support our ministry is first follow our Instagram page. You can like our Facebook page as well. You can listen to this online broadcast each and every week. And of course, you can make comments underneath whatever social media channel you listen to. And we will try to answer those questions or address those comments in real time. You can financially support our ministry through our website, resonatelife.org, under the Give tab. So you are joining us live on Thursday night at 8.30 p.m. for this podcast, and we will be replaying this uh, vlogcast on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock. So you are receiving this live tonight, and then there is a recording that will be played on Sunday morning. And I encourage you to watch this live if you can. Um, if you miss it, then of course you can pick it up at any time. So every Thursday night, we're coming together for this, for a better understanding of the material that we're covering, kind of like a deeper dive. And tonight, we are online tonight talking about the book of Exodus. And today we are discussing Exodus 3.1 through 4.17. So I'm joined today with Sherea Bodner, of course, and Jake Flug, of course, two of my leaders at Resonate. Good evening, Sherea and Jake. How are you? Thank you. Hey. Awesome. Well, we are going to read the entire section of 3.1 through 4.17, like we did last week. If you missed our broadcast the last several weeks. I want to encourage you to go back to those to get caught up. Those are very important, just some background of why we're covering what we're covering and to give you a little bit of backstory of how we're covering what we're covering as well. So we're not necessarily just going through the scriptures. We're going through the scriptures and we are discussing deconstruction and also more now construction. So we are in the construction phase of what is the book of Exodus? How was it written? And why was it written? And how does it apply to our lives? So Sharia, you're going to read. So go ahead and take the floor. You are up. All right. Exodus 3, 1 through 4, 17. Moses was taking care of the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, Midian's priest. He led his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Horeb. The Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was in flames, but it didn't burn up. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out this amazing sight and find out why the bush isn't burning up. When the Lord saw that he was coming to look, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. Moses said, I'm here. Then the Lord said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because you were standing on holy ground. He continued, I am the God of your father, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I've clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. 
I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey, a place where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites all live. Now the Israelites' cry of injustice have reached me. I've seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So get going. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I to go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites out of Egypt? God said, I'll be with you. And this will show you that I'm the one who sent you. After you bring the people out of Egypt, you will come back here and worship God on this mountain. But Moses said to God, if I now come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they're going to ask me, what's this God's name? What am I supposed to say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. So say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God continued, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how all generations will remember me. Go and get Israel's elders and bring them together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me. The Lord said, I've been paying close attention to you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I've decided to take you away from the harassment in Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land full of milk and honey. They will accept what you say to them. Then you and Israel's elders will go to Egypt's king and say to him, the Lord, the Hebrews God, has met with us. So now let us go on a three-day journey into the desert so that we can offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. However, I know that Egypt's king won't let you go unless he's forced to do it. So I'll use my strength and hit Egypt with, uh, with dramatic displays of my power. After that, he'll let you go. I'll make it so that when you leave Egypt, the Egyptians will be kind to you and you won't go away empty-handed. Every woman will ask her neighbor along with the immigrant in her household for their silver and their gold jewelry, as well as their clothing. Then you will put it on your sons and daughters, and you will rob the Egyptians. Then Moses replied, but what if they don't believe me or pay attention to me? They might say to me, the Lord didn't appear to you. The Lord said to him, what's that in your hand? Moses replied, a shepherd's rod. The Lord said, throw it down on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground, and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out and grab the snake by the tail. So Moses reached out and grabbed it, and it turned back into a rod in his hand. Do this so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God, has in fact appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to Moses, put your hand inside your coat. So Moses put his hand inside his coat. When he took his hand out, his hand had a skin disease, flaky like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your coat. So Moses put his hand back inside his coat. When he took it back out again, the skin of his hand had returned to normal. If they won't believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second sign. If they won't believe even these two signs or pay attention to you, 
Then take some water from the Nile River and pour it out on dry ground. The water that you take from the Nile will turn into blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, My Lord, I've never been able to speak well, not yesterday, not the day before, and certainly not now since you've been talking to your servant. I have a slow mouth and a thick tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who gives people the ability to speak? Who's responsible for making them unable to speak or hard of hearing, sighted or blind? Isn't it I, the Lord? Now go, I'll help you speak and I'll teach you what to say. But Moses said, please, my Lord, just send someone else. Then the Lord got angry at Moses and said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak very well. He's on his way out to meet you now and he's looking forward to seeing you. Speak to him and tell him what he's supposed to say. I'll help both of you speak, and I'll teach both of you what to do. Aaron will speak for you to the people. He'll be a spokesperson for you, and you will be like God for him. Take this shepherd's rod with you, too, so that you can do the signs. The word of the Lord. So this is a little confusing to me, and you guys are going to have to help me out here because we have a burning bush. We have snakes staffs turning the snakes back to staffs we have a bad case of eczema of the hands we have some really weird witchcraft going on with bloody water and then we have this fat tongue like lost of taste and smell like a covid outbreak or whatever i don't know what's going on with moses so the one thing though is if that is not all like what is happening and why, why is this even in here? And what, what are we trying to accomplish with this story? One of the things that's really confusing to me is when Jethro is called out by name. And if the story wasn't wild enough, now Jethro, who is Moses' Moses's father-in-law, that, so Moses, so the context of the story is Moses, kills an Egyptian, correct me if, correct my, cause I'm just doing this off the cuff. Moses kills an Egyptian, buries him in the sand. Cause that's what we do with all Egyptians that we kill is we bury them in the sand, right? For some reason, that's a, that's a detail in there. So he buries him in the sand and then he runs away, basically away from Pharaoh. And during that time, then he is basically gets married and grows up. So we have this scene now where Moses is older and God is appearing to him in this uh, burning type bush or burning type tree. Uh, but Moses is now father-in-law is called different names. So first we have Jethro, uh, but that's not his consistent name through Exodus and in Deuteronomy and Judges. Why don't we throw up some scriptures? Why don't we show Jethro's name and kind of unpack that problem? And Jake, you're going to walk us through this. Yeah, I can take most of it if you want me to. Good. Okay, so in two, let's start in actually three, one. We read that. Uh, now Moses was keeping flaw, the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And so what we're going to do here is kind of a deep dive into some Hebrew. And so the bleed cursor 
on the right is going to be the name for Jethro. And uh, it's those four consonants. In Hebrew, those little dots around there would be the vowel pointing. And this is a special word because the, the last actually consonant in this word is a vowel, which was called a holom vav. And it's the only vowel that existed before the Masoretes, which we'll get into a little later, I believe, uh, added vowel pointing to the Hebrew text. And so, so, to, so to clarify for the listeners, so we have like under this, so if I read from the right to the left of that highlighted Hebrew word, the dot underneath that little accent that looks like a little backwards R right there, that dot is a vowel pointing, you're saying, correct? Correct. And those did and not exist. And those and did not exist dot. until late in so, the 800s CE. So then we have two dots, and then we have that comma looking thing there. So the dot, Banana, the two yeah. dots, the comma underneath that big R, the, the third letter over. So those are vowel pointings. But then this last on the left, this let this this shape this hebrew yes. letter that looks Vav, like a yeah. shape to to everyone else it looks like a shape shape okay that looks like a little shepherd one staff. little flag right a little shepherd staff there with the dot above so that's a vowel you're saying that is a vowel and what is that vowel oh okay a long o it's the only so, long vowel in the hebrew uh, language as well. So Jethro. Jethro. Okay, I get that. Good. Okay. And so this is a transliterated word. Earlier, before we went live, we talked about the difference between transliteration and translation. Transliteration is where you take, uh, well, trans no, sorry, translation is where you take the meaning of the word and put it in your own language. And transliteration is where you take either the consonants and vowels, and you put those in your own consonant or vowels, and it remains the same in sound and structure. And so this is Jethro or Yethro. And so we can get into Y's or J's later, but the, uh, that is a transliterated word. So that's okay. Jethro. The first time we see Jethro, his name is Raul right here. And on the right side, you'll see the, the blue text highlight the first time we meet the Midian priest, Raul. And then in 14, uh, you have Jethro, but the translators of this Bible, um, of this ESV I'm using, because it's, it's, it connects to another book, uh, they took the name Jethro and made it easy for everyone to understand by just making it Jethro and not Yeter, how it should be read. And so you have Jeter, basically, Jethro, Raul. And then when you skip ahead into Judges, you read the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And so Hobab, the letter name for Hobab is right there in the blue. I don't know if you actually see that. Uh, there you go, in the blue. And then if you do want to see what Moses' name actually looks like, it is right there. 
So you have the four different names for Moses's father-in-law, the Midian priest. Okay, so I've been called a lot of things and I've been called Kevin. I've been called Kev. I've been called names. I've been called a jerk, right? But I've never been called different names like this. So we have Raul, we have Jethro, we have Yeter, and Hobob. Trey, you want to explain this to us? Because this is this is doesn't seem consistent to me. So what does this all mean? I think it's clues to how um, Exodus was compiled from multiple sources, um, which is something that we talked about, I think, a couple weeks ago, um, that as far as scholars can tell, there are four primary um, sources and or editors of the first five books of the Bible. Um, and here we have four names, which is awfully convenient. Right. So I think each of those is coming from a different mm -hmm. tradition that um, all were compiled into one thing. And rather than trying to silence the voices of other traditions or streams, um, the editors opted to keep the differences, um, to highlight those differences. And I think that's something instructive as well. Yeah, because I think that that just shows, number one, the if you believe in the incarnation of scripture, where scripture was written fully by God and fully by human beings, if you believe in that idea, which I do, which I affirm, this just brings that full humanness aspect to it. Mm -hmm. And when I was researching this week about it, what I discovered is, you know, not all the tribes just hung out with one another. And that's something that was interesting to me. But you had the tribes of Israel, or you have like these, these different, uh, different groups, even within the tribes, and not all of them hung out. And they actually didn't all speak the same nuances of Hebrew. They spoke different like ideas of Hebrew too. So that would be uh, an interesting deep dive study as well, which we don't have time for, but just looking at tribal, uh, modern day tribal activity versus ancient tribal activity. And how did they operate? Did they work together? Did they even talk to one another? But what you're saying basically is a different, not version, but a different nuance, different utterance of the story was, was created. So this tribe over here had their, their telling, their testimony of Exodus. And this tribe over here had their telling of Exodus. And Moses's father-in-law's name was Jethro over here and Raul over here. And when that came together in exile, they wrote, wrote it all down and decided, why change it? Because this group over here, you know, that's what they know. And they would so, do, it would like, at that point, whose do you choose? Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's all in the inspired word of God. Well, not just that, all, but, but at who's, who's going to be hurt if, if their tradition is not picked. Right. 
Well, the Levites probably would have had something to say about that, I'm sure, because they probably were the ones that believed that they held on to the word of God, or they were the ones that actually had this like direct connect with the presence of God. So, but I don't know, I wasn't there. <laughs> I wasn't around when that was being compiled. I just found that interesting because modern day tribes, like you look at modern day tribal activity and they have, you know, they might be speaking similar languages that came from one another, but there would be nuance, of course, differences, even within like a dialect, a different dialect. And then they wouldn't necessarily speak to one another, cross over their farms or whatever, however they operate. So even in modern day tribalism, you see a separation. It's not just let's all live as one big, huge, you know, happy group and one community. So that's where this idea of tradition comes from that you were speaking of, Shreya, that the idea of traditions could come from just different groups. Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's, do you guys have anything to add about that? Cause that's pretty profound stuff there. I think I'm okay with that one. Okay. All right. I might, I might bring it back for application time. Okay. All right. Good. <laughs> Cause you and Jake have application. So you don't know that yet, but I'm just going to ask you to, for the application of scripture. So um, in the end. All right. So let's look at the large pictures. Let's look at the, each section that we went through um, and, and the big ideas of scripture. Now, I would say that these are pictures and metaphors and large ideas that, that we'll cover. And the first idea that I want to just bring to the table is Moses the shepherd. And Moses is this leader and he's chosen to be this person that, that leads the people like a flock, um, like Psalm 77 says, that Psalm 77 says that Moses led the people like a flock. So he is the shepherd, and we have this flock of sheep. Well, that just brings up Jesus to me, that we are sheep and he is our good shepherd. So there's allusions to the tie of Moses and Jesus. Um, here as the good shepherd. Do you guys have anything to say about that? Like the flock of sheep and the Moses, Moses being the shepherd and how that's an important idea. You can go first, Ray. Um, I think just that it's a consistent thread throughout scripture. Um, and, and that we see that in um, a few other leadership situations too like you have Moses is getting ready to lead the people and first he's a shepherd you have David who is a shepherd and later goes on to become king of Israel um and then you have the shepherds who um were the first to hear about the birth of Christ and to go and tell people right Mm -hmm. Jake do you have anything to add there I think it's interesting that there is the theme and motif that leading people is like leading a a, a flock of sheep. Mm. And so probably not very fun, disorientated, I'm sure. 
I've never done it, but I think probably sheep are often seen as stupid animals that run away and get into danger and they don't listen. A lot listen. of sheep lovers out there, be careful. Lots of sheep, lots <laughs> of sheep lovers. Uh, the, you have like the difficulty of being a shepherd, the isolation that, that the leader feels out by themselves, out trying to lead these things that don't want to be led even to the safety of quiet streams and nice grass. They want to go and get in briars. What's interesting to me about shepherding is when you, in modern day shepherding, you shepherd from the back. So you herd the animals. So you herd the cows from the back. So you're on a horse. I guess that's modern day. So you're on a horse and you're, you're running behind the cows, trying to get the cows like in the pen, right? And, and you're, you're chasing after them. But in Eastern mentality, especially in antiquity, the shepherd would stand out in front and whistle in the front and the sheep would recognize their shepherd. And so since you, obviously he was, or she was just walking and the shepherd just would be out front. The sheep would recognize the shepherd. Their call. Right. Their call out front, their whistle out front. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting about the shepherd and the sheep idea is all rabbis modeled Moses. No matter what, all rabbis, well, number one, the Jewish tradition is the follow of the first five books of the Bible. And that's, that's the, that's the, the Torah. That is the most important. Um, and in those books of the Bible, we see a modeling of shepherd shepherding through Moses. And so Moses is that model for all rabbis. So the idea of the dust of the rabbi and the re the sheep, the followers staying so close to the rabbi that they would be in the dust of the rabbi's feet. That's how close the shepherd would live with the sheep. So Moses knew his people. What's really interesting is right before in chapter two, we see Moses, he, the reason why he kills the Egyptian, did you guys pick that up? The reason why he killed the Egyptian? He was being mean to the Israelites. Right. Yeah. yeah. He had compassion on the, like, why would somebody in Pharaoh's house raised in that kingdom? And why would he be compassionate on a slave? So obviously, Obviously, however you want to believe how that came about, was God working on Moses even before this time? I, you know, probably. Um, but I would say that there was a sense of compassion that Moses had that was uh, maybe innate, something different than the people around him had, especially for the Hebrew people. All right, well, that's a small, small section. Let's talk about the next bigger picture, and that is the mountain that is Sinai. And the reason why we're bringing up the mountain is because of the bush. And so the top of this mountain is this bush on fire. Uh, so Jake, why don't you take, cause you said some really interesting things through the week about the, the bush on fire and the mountain in Sinai. So why don't you take it? Cause this is really good. So the Sinai and going back to Hebrew, you have a, Let's just for the E's S and an N and an H. And 
you have the word. And that spells Sinai, right? Yeah, that's Sinai. And then you have um, the word for bush, which is Senna, which is also S, N, or H. And so the the question that a lot of scholars have is, does, does the story match the mountain or does a mountain match the story? So when you look at the mountain, does that, is that the bush mountain? Is that the mountain that God was in the bush or did they, the bush was the, the mountain named bush. And so that story must've happened up there. So we don't really know, but I take the position that the mountain was named bush because of the story of the bush. And so when, when Moses comes up to the top of the mountain and he sees this bush on fire. We have this, this view and idea that it's a small shrub that's on fire, where bush probably should be better translated as a tree. And if you go far enough into what Senna means or Sinai, it is the almond tree. And so, so we're gonna we're gonna get into that here in a minute, the almond tree in our outline. Yes, but that's that's really interesting. Just to camp on that idea first is, we do think of this bush as this small little sagebrush that's you know caught on fire, or you know maximum a a bush that's as tall as Moses, mm-hmm. right? And it's on fire and it's now speaking. But what's what's interesting about the fire is it's not consuming the bush. So let's move to that before we go over the almond tree, because that's a, that's yeah. another point that we need to make. Um, the fire go, going back a step, if I could. Sure. Uh, in Exodus two, the mountain is named Hoab. Right. And God says to Moses to come back and worship here, and I'll give you basically the law. And the next time Moses comes to that mountain, the name then is Sinai. Bush right. Mountain. Yeah, go right. ahead. Well, then the fire then presents itself as something as well. And that's the presence of God. And Trey starts thinking about, because I, I off the cuff here, uh, think about where are some other uh, fires in scripture before I end this one little thought here. Then I'll switch over to like the presence of God. Yeah, yeah. So the fire being the presence of God. But we we see this fire and it doesn't consume, let's just call it an almond tree. So it doesn't consume the almond tree. Now there's two thoughts there that it was miraculous that it didn't consume the almond tree, or the fire didn't consume the almond tree because the almond tree was too big to consume. So so there's two thoughts there. Uh a fire consuming a or firing a, a tree and a voice coming from it is miraculous in and of itself and that's that is what it is um but the fire represents something bigger than just a miraculous fire that appears on a tree it means the presence of god so do, do we have some other scriptures that you know about that is fire in the presence of God, just off the top of your head. Do you, can you think of any? Yeah. The first one was uh, Acts 2, um, Pentecost, the spirit of God. Okay. In tongues of fire that also do not burn up the disciples. 
That's a good point, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but if we rewind back to Genesis 15, 17, um, God shows up as a smoking fire pot. Right. And a flaming torch. Mm -hmm. Isn't it a flaming torch as well? Yeah, and they're both there. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, then we after, have a pillar of fire. We have pillar. Right. Right. After okay. after they leave Egypt, God leads them as a pillar of fire. And where does the Shekinah come into play? That's a great question. So is the Shekinah, the Shekinah is the presence of God. Yeah. Is that ever represented with fire? How is else? I, I think so. How else do you represent the presence of God? Whirlwind. Right. Yeah, Water. wind. Uh, that would be just a really good, you know, just because I just, like, I just thought of that. It's like the Shekinah. The Shekinah is the feminine presence of god that mm -hmm. word is feminine so that is a feminine presence of god now that's becomes controversial because okay how can god be a, a woman right god's a man um which that's just not reasonable thinking to just put a gender on god um yet that's what everyone has done over you know thousands of years now so the so the Shekinah though is is the feminine presence of God, and I believe I'll have to do some digging around. I believe that the Shekinahs can be represented in in fire as well. So there's some examples there of fire being the presence of of God, but fire that does not consume. And so this goes back to the refiner's fire. Yep. That fire is made by God, the presence of God is a refining idea versus a consuming idea, different than other gods. Because mm -hmm. other gods, the warrior God, right? right? Flames of fire coming down, going to, you know, annihilate versus refine. Okay, let's get back to that almond tree, Jake. Um, so we have this idea that the bush is an almond tree, which makes complete sense because if this was written and penned down in exile, the, the almond tree was the most, I'll, I'll just claim it, that it's the most sacred symbol of Jewish tradition, of Hebrew tradition, the, the almond tree. So do you have any thoughts on what the almond tree is and why that is and why am I saying what I'm saying? Do you have any like, I do. First, I'm watching our Facebook stream struggle tonight. Not okay. quite sure why. Uh, YouTube is up and going very well. And so if you guys are struggling with uh, the Facebook feed, just head over to YouTube. I'm not sure why Facebook is Facebook meta. Is it jumpy or what is it? It's a little, it's a little bit jumpy. I keep losing signal. But if, uh, if it doesn't bother you, stay there. I'm watching there too. So you're good. Um, okay but YouTube is streaming well. Okay, so where are we at? The almond tree. Almond tree, the most sacred symbol 
of all time. And so with, where do I want to start at? Um, if you ever read Guns, Germs, and Steel by Jared Diamond, uh, there is a, an entire section on the making of the almond. And mm. throughout all of Near Eastern history and literature, uh, the almond has always been seen as sacred. And I think it might have been because of the hard work to get it to be edible. Mm. And so uh, almonds, especially in their raw form, if not treated well, contain high levels of arsenic. And so it was probably a lot of trial and error that had to, um, that they had to basically eat and defecate to be able to plant edible almonds. And so uh, all almond trees, based on Jared Diamond says, is that all almond trees were in uh, cesspools. So I'm not sure why there was an outhouse in the top of a bush mountain, but <laughs> we'll get there later. Uh, so you have the almond tree. Uh, Aaron's staff later on is an almond branch. The almond Moses, tree is Moses's staff as well. Is Moses' staff as well? It's pretty sure. much it's pretty much thought 100 percent that it was pretty almond, much thought. Yeah, almond wood. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I know because that. in mid in Midian. That's where all the almond trees grew. Yeah. So they were living in Midian and there would have been a ton of almond trees there. Got it. Yeah. And so when they puts it in the box and he retrieves the staff, which we'll see later on about who's going to be the first priest and becomes Aaron, uh, his staff is the first to blossom. And so if you know about almond trees, almond trees are the first to blossom and the first to bear fruit. So it makes sense that his mm. staff would be the one to do it. Uh, the almond, the actual fruit, uh, fruit, meat, what do we call it in the inside of a nut? Uh, that shape is the most sacred shape of history of Christianity because it is the mandorla, which is the overlapping of two circles, which is the intersection of heaven and creation, which at the top of Mount Sinai is exactly what is happening. Heaven has come to earth and communicating with humanity. And so that is why it is best thought to be that the burning bush would be this magnificent almond tree, not this little shrub. So is it for the critics out there, is it appropriate to say that it is plausible that all of this symbolism in exile was overlaid this retelling of this story. Rephrase your question. Aaron having an almond staff, Moses having an almond staff, the potential of this being an almond tree, the whole idea of heaven and earth coming together, the shape of the almond, the, the whole symbolism of the almond tree that becomes the sacred symbol over time and some have i've read some have said well since this was penned later since this was like written down later it would be very reasonable for the authors to overlay some of this symbolism in the scripture 
Now, to me, that doesn't take any value away. It actually adds value to me. But some people would, you know, freak out over that nuance that potentially somebody wrote in their sacred Bible glasses. Yeah. Or their, uh, their sacred symbol meanings, just to kind of drop those in as they went. Uh, so that was just, but I think it's reasonable to say that that could have been, that could have happened. It could have happened. It also, it, I, I think the almond tree has been sacred for a very, very, very long time. Yeah, so do I. And so when this was all oral tradition, it is very likely that the almond tree gained importance through these oral traditions. Right. So I was just saying that for the deconstructionist person out there that's like ripping apart the Bible and saying, well, this is just all a you know, story that was made up and blah, blah, blah. And then they start ripping apart these little nuances here too, where it's like, well, how, well, that seems very convenient that there's a common thread of almond all the way through your Bible. Right. So it's a good story. It is a great, it's a great story. So heaven and earth come together and that's where we have this presence of, of God, the presence of God. Just a couple of minutes on another section here. Those are the main themes. We have the flock of sheep and Moses as the shepherd, Mount Sinai and the bush, which came first, the chicken or the egg. We have the fire and the presence of God. Uh, we see that, like Sharia said, Acts 2, Genesis 15, pillars of fire um, after leaving Egypt in the wilderness and such. And then the bush being the symbolic almond tree where that it becomes a very sacred symbol um, for all time. That then uh, brings us to this testimony, this story, which is the whole story of Exodus is a magnificent, beautiful, incredible story it's a story like no other but it's written in a fashion that it's a defense and really the whole old testament even if you look at deuteronomy um and if you want to bring the the shema up really quick you'll see even the shema in 6 4 of deuteronomy you'll see that that it's said in a way that somebody's asking a question so there's judges Okay, here, O Israel. Be, uh, I'm reading it off your Where am I share at screen. Here? Six four. Yeah, There's six, six four. three, six three. There we go. Six four. Sorry. Okay, here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, your mind. So there's the command, right, of the Shema. <clears throat> but that is said in a way that is not just a not just a command, it's said in a defense. It's said in the defense of God. And so there's lots of defenses of God. And this is said in a way that uh, there's an author and a theologian out there called, uh, his name is Brueggemann, Walter Brueggemann. And he said that the story of Exodus is really like a testimony, like a courtroom. And when you look at the whole Old Testament, it is this testimony that is being given in a defense of thanksgiving like they're gonna they're going to you know hey people give thanks to the lord because the lord is good so they're they're giving this story as like uh like showing a group of people who god is 
like a, like a like a witness testimony. I've seen God, and this is who God is. We've witnessed God. This is what God did. Uh, it's constant, like constantly said, like a testimony as a courtroom witness. So I think that's important to see because um, it shows something about the people. The people were, you know, at this point, you know, we see, we're going to see a lot of complaining. We're going to see a lot of grumbling, but people are sometimes fickle and sometimes we, well, and, and we go through a lot sometimes and it's easy to get off the path. And so if you were putting God on the stand and convicting God, you're not keeping your promises, God, and you put God up on the stand and you're not saying what you're not doing, what you said you were going to do, and you're not following through with your promises and you're letting us die out here. Um, this is written as look at what God did for us. Look at what God will do for us. So be thankful for that. They're saying, or look at the righteousness of God. That's an important um, concept all the way through the old Testament is look at the righteousness people. God is a righteous, righteous God. He's the one that's incomparable to other gods. He's incomparable to any God that you can think of. God is, is greater. So he's the one who creates. He's the one who redeems. Um, that's the whole book of Exodus. Why would God redeem these people? And this is how God redeems these people. He's the one that commands. He's the one that leads. He's the one that loves. He's the, the, the greatest shepherd of the flock. So I think that there's just something there that God, God has put like, this is the testimony of God. And they're telling the story like they're giving a defense. And God is seen as an active agent. You think that God is passive people. You think that God is not showing up. You think that God is not present and all these things. God is an active agent. And you are the recipient of that active agent. You're the recipient of his greatness, of his righteousness, of his love, of his, of his goodness and all the characteristics of, of God you can think of. I got a little preachy there, but <laughs> that's just, that's just, uh, I think what, um, what some of the studying and the reading that I've done is that Exodus is, and Deuteronomy and all really all the Old Testament is framed that way where there's like this audience and, and the writer is convincing this audience that God is greater and God is the redeemer and God is the creator and such. So you guys have any thoughts about that or do you want to just move forward to the next, the next thing? Move forward. It's good. Okay. Cause we are, we only have a couple of handful of minutes to cover like five hours of material. So let's go over the names of God. You, you two are going to take this one. Um, the names of God. Uh, there's multiple names of God used in scripture. So clean this up for us. Help us out. Jake and Sharia when it comes to the names of God. I am going to go back to um, a Shema, which Kevin talked about a little bit ago. And so you can see the hero Israel, the Lord God is one. And so whenever you read 
the Lord uh, that is directly translated from the name Yahweh. And there's an issue with Yahweh. Yahweh is actually the German transliteration and Germans don't really have W's, they have V's that look like W's. And so in English, it really should be read Yahweh, but that would be a really difficult switch to make now. So we'll just continue with Yahweh. I won't say Yahweh, I promise. Um, but this word right here is Yahweh or Yahweh. And anytime you see these two letters together, these last two letters, if you can read my cursor, maybe. Uh, the one that looks like an X and the one that looks like yeah. a, yeah. a chair. I think it's Aleph and help me out, Lambda. No, that's a Greek. Trey, go for it. Lamech. Lamech. Um, whenever you see those two, it points to God. The, 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 the deity person, the divine person is El. And so you have Elohim, El Shaddai, El El Shekinah, and it goes on and on and on with the L's and the attribute. And so, so yeah, Israel, Israel, which I'm actually on right now, which is funny, hmm. is those that wrestle with God, which is a great metaphor of the people of Israel. As you look at the Old Testament, they wrestle a lot with God. And so here are Israel, the Lord, with Yahweh. They say the Lord because it was a sin to, to say the name of God. And so when Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, which we'll get into later, uh, you were not to use the Lord's name in vain. And they went so far as to say, I won't even speak the Lord's name. And so whenever you would come across this letter, not just this side, this, this name in Hebrew, they would stop and say, Adonai. Adonai is the same word that we get for Lord. And so is that under a, under a king, because king had its own word, the king for the name for king was Moloch. And mm -hmm. so Adonai uh, is this lordship. And Elohim, which is the next word, is the first name in Genesis that we see for God. Uh, this isn't Elohim, but it's it's derived from Elohim. Elohim is the feminine plural attribute, attributal name of God. And so. Um, it's so paused there because here we have another thought interjection of the feminine version of God, correct? Is that what you're saying? Correct. And so whenever in a Hebrew and remember the uh, let's go there. Whenever you have the Hebrew, uh, you go from right to left, remember? And so L is God, L right here, O, Him. And so this last letter, which you'll have to help me out what it is, Shreya. Mem. Mem is for moms. And so <laughs> this, this M at the end of this, this letter word is completely feminine and there'd be no reason to put this on any sort of male name whatsoever. Mm. Um, but it is a plural name. 
right? And so, which makes sense when you get into let's make humankind in our own image. This story has multiple faces of the one God. And so um, we'll go over to El Shaddai. El Shaddai. So El Shaddai just means God Almighty. Now, we have heard the name uh, Jehovah before. I'm sure many of us have. It's in lots of songs. It's in lots of texts and books. Jehovah is a stumbling word. And by stumbling word, so the Masoretes were this group of uh, Hebrew scholars and scribes that got together in the Middle Ages, so 800 CE, so 800 years after Christ died, and they put vowels in the Hebrew text in the Pentateuch so that when you lost tradition, you could remain consistent with thought. And so native speakers of any language do not need vowels in order to read the words on the page. And so you can even try it out yourself. If you take all the, all the vowels out of words, you can put together sentences very quickly by just not by just the consonants. They're just a waste of time to add the consonants. And so Jehovah is the vowels of the word Adonai, so Lord, placed on Yahweh, which is here. <laughs> and so these here and here, so you can see this right here. The vowels in Yahweh are the vowels for Adonai. And so you would stop and you, would, you wouldn't say the word because it is impossible to say it. In English, we did our very best to say it, and we have come up with this word Jehovah, which exists nowhere, and it is not a real word. And that theology comes out of the late 1300s, 1400s, when we forgot about the Masoretes vowel pointing and that Hebrew never had vowels. And so Yahweh became Jehovah. And they thought that that was the actual name of God when really that was just the Masoretes having some fun with the text. Sometimes. So the whole idea of Jehovah is Jehovah is a fake name. That's what I hear. I'll still call it a fake name. Just it's. It's not a real name. It's nowhere in scripture. It's nowhere in scripture. It is a it is a very hard attempt to try to understand the text when we don't submit to history and tradition. Mm. Okay. Well, that you know the the whole list. If you Google the names of God, and then you get this whole El Shaddai, Adonai, and then. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, all these like all these Jehovah words as well that people have just 
kind of maybe created their own uh, library of, of yeah. names of God. Then. Can I take one more minute? Would you allow me to? Sure. So in Star Trek, uh, oh gosh, my, my, my brain's skipping. Spock, but Henry Howard, what's his name? Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. Leonard thank Nimoy. you. Uh, the Spock tradition, and it would be turned a little bit, is... Oh, is the, is the thumb included? The thumb's included because it's yeah. a share. It's a, it's a W. And this okay. is the Shekinah. So this is the name of God in signal and sign language. So when priests would walk around, they would hold this signal in front of them that they are ushering in the presence of God. And so when Spock would give the Vulcan salute, I forget what it is, but it was a tip of the hat to God being present. That's what tradition tells us. Sure. We don't have really total proof. I like the story. It's a great story. (laughs) It is. (laughs) Well, another great story is the Elohim, which you can't get around the fact that that is a feminine form of the name of God. And that brings me to Proverbs 8, 1 through 11, the Sophia. And Sophia, basically wisdom, is translated wisdom in scripture, but Proverbs 1 through 8, wisdom, Sophia, that is uh, the female that created the universe and all that was in it with God. So not sure who Sophia is and what Sophia is about, but we know that there's a, a lot of times in scripture what I know also like the queen of heaven has been removed from some scriptures in uh, uh, this text that Jake is talking about through the Masorites. So uh, the question um, that we're challenged with through all this is for me, where do I find the female, um, I don't want to say illusions, but female forms or female representations of God in in scripture and Proverbs 8, 1 through 11, Elohim is another example. We see just even the activity of God that God births out of the womb. What's the word, Shreya, that you were alluding to? The womb. And where is that seen? Um, Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, Lord, a God merciful and compassionate. Compassion compassionate, compassionate, yeah. Womb womb right so out of the womb comes uh comes redemption out of the womb comes the feeding of israel out of the womb comes compassion on israel even in their complaining putting up with israel and in ancient literature these are all female characteristics of divinity and you can't you can't read scripture without acknowledging and and processing through that and i know that's controversial for some people people don't like to talk about god the mother um because it's god's supposed to be a father and their yahweh the father is seen as well but also yahweh 
the mother is seen in these other aspects as well. And you can't, you can't get around that. You have to, you have to face that and acknowledge it because God is genderless and God is for everyone. And God uh, performs like everyone as well, because we are created in his image. Uh, gender, both gender was created in his, his image and respectfully all gender is created in his image. So Sharia, give us some application because we have to land on some application and, and we'll go over, we have one more section that we didn't get a chance to cover, but that's, a, that's another 10 minutes. And we want to be respectful of people who listen that we're sticking to uh, 45 minutes. So, so for an hour. So Shreya, take us to some application. Yeah. Um, the one I was just thinking about um, when we started, we were talking about uh, the, the four names of Moses's father-in-law. Um, and how they are likely representative of different traditions that were passed down. Um, and the scribes and scholars who compiled the Pentateuch together chose to keep those differences instead of smoothing them out. Um, I think that's a challenge for us in our relationships choosing to keep differences instead of just smoothing them out. Um, but also I think that can be a challenge in, in how we approach uh, the text and our faith. Um, can we sit in the differences? Can we sit in the tension or do we rush to try and smooth it out? That's good. Thank you. Jake, land, land, the, land the plane with some uh, application and we'll close with you um my application was on the next section and so that's a bummer but <laughs> <laughs> the we had a story this morning about uh, someone's kid coming to them and having the struggle of if if Adam and Eve birthed kids and hold the race, then aren't we related to everybody? So who do we marry then? <laughs> and so, I mean, that's a very excellent view. This person's very young. And so to even have that, that level of cognition okay. is, is wonderful. Um, we need to allow the, the text to be what it is, to speak to our hearts, to allow God to, to speak through greater metaphors than we put God in and God wants to be in. And so we can get into that later with the building of, of the temple where God never wanted a temple. God wanted to be on the move and be in a tent and go to every village and every, every tribe would have access to God. Um, and so allowing God to speak, allowing God to change us. And so the, the next session was convincing Moses to go. And so Moses eventually had to, to say yes. But God could have done it by God's self. But there's this aspect of 
working in partnership that we have to say yes to God too. That's brilliant. Well, thanks you too for um, everything that you presented and gave. It was really important stuff and really helpful uh, for me to bring some understanding to these scriptures. And I hope everyone enjoyed tonight. So good night, everybody. Have a wonderful evening and we will see you next week.